1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to look at the first six verses. When you get there, say amen. 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 Hear the reading of God's word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. I want to tag our text today, the gifts of God, the gifts of God. Let's pray before we dive into God's word. Father, thank you for your word today. Thank you uh, that you've brought us together around it and that you promise as we gather together as your people that you are in our midst and that here, God, as you show up, we pray that you would work powerfully in our lives. Change us into the image of Christ. Change us into the people that you want us to be that you might get all the glory, and it'll be for our good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever received a gift and thought to yourself, what am I supposed to do with this? Right? Have you, have you ever got one of those gifts, and in the back of your mind, you're trying to be kind to the person who gave the gift, but, but you're wondering how, how am I going to use this? And, and it quickly real, you quickly realize that you have a little bit more drudgery than joy over the gift. If you've ever played that game, they usually play it at Christmas time, called White Elephant Gift Giving, you know what I'm talking about. I, I don't know how this became a, a Christmas tradition for certain people, but, but I, I looked up the origins of this, this phrase, the White Elephant. And interesting enough, it actually goes all the way back to the monarchs of Southeast Asia. And the, the king of Siam, which is now modern-day Thailand, he, he would uh, do this thing that if, if he had an enemy that he wanted to, to just you know, annoy and eventually take down, he, he would do this strange thing where he would send that person this very unique gift, a white elephant, in fact, it, it was a live albino elephant. And in their culture, these elephants were so rare that they were considered sacred. And so because they were sacred animals, if you received this type of gift, you had no choice but to take the greatest care of it. And so here's this elephant that shows up on your front porch, and all of a sudden you have to feed it, you have to clean it, you have to house it, you have to walk it. You have to center your whole life around this elephant that you can't get rid of. And if it dies, it's somehow spiritually harmful to you. And what would happen is, after you do that for one day, one week, one month, one year, one decade, you would get so worn out, you would eventually crumble in your kingdom because you're so distracted by this white elephant. That is a gift that's useless, 
right? I mean, this gift that, that you thought it was going to be a blessing, you, you thought it was going to be something that would help you, but then when you finally got the gift, you realize the burden of caring for it is too much. A useless gift can be a dangerous gift. But also, you can receive a gift that, that if, if you don't know what to do with it, if it has a use but you don't know what to do with it, it can be just as dangerous, right? There, there's, uh, the news has been going a little crazy the last few weeks because I don't know if you heard the Mega Millions jackpot got up to 1.3 billion with a B. 1.3 billion a few weeks ago. Now, don't raise your hand in church. I know some of y'all played the lottery because you're thinking 1.3 billion. I mean, I would just buy one ticket, but 1.3 billion. And they say that the winner, who I don't think has been uh, identified, was one person, an overnight billionaire. And I was, as I was reading about it this week, uh, they said that, you know, they've done research. There's been studies on what happens after people win that kind of money. And did you know that 70%, get this, 70% of lotto jackpot winners are broke after seven years? 70%. Now, I know some of y'all, you're like, I'll take my chances. I might be in that 30%. I'm, I'm going to take a chance. But what happens is you receive all this gift, all, so much, millions of dollars worth, and you don't know what to do with it. And it destroys you. It's dangerous. Right? You, you can have a, a useless gift that's dangerous. You can have a misuse gift that's dangerous. In other words, what I'm saying is gifts require more than just the right receiving. They require the right using. You catch that? You can't just receive a gift. You have to use the gift properly or it can be harmful. And so today we're starting a new three-week series, just a few weeks. We're calling it We Are Strong Tower. And, and really, this is not a new series. We've done this series multiple times over the years, and it's kind of an annual thing for us as a church to just kind of recalibrate and say, who are we as God's people? Who has God called us to be as a church? And this year, what I want us to focus on for just a few weeks is our spiritual gifts as God's people. What, what does it mean to, to have God's gifts in our life? What does it mean for His gifts to function in our life as a church. And so I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which was Paul's letter to the Corinthian church. And, and this chapter is kind of central in the New Testament understanding of spiritual gifts. It's the longest treatment you get in the New Testament. And Paul is, is speaking to spiritual gifts in the midst of all of this church division. And so spiritual gifts are not this high and lofty, separated topic, but rather Paul is speaking directly to their local body of believers. What does this mean for us together? And so that's what I want to look over the next couple of weeks. I want to look at what they are, how they function, what does it mean for me? And today we're going to dive in and just kind of briefly touch on this topic that will unfold for the next few weeks. And I want to look at how God calls us to use the gifts. And so if you're taking notes today, first we're going to look at two dangers, two dangers. Look at me at verse 1 as Paul begins this chapter. He says this, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Somebody say uninformed. uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, 
You were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Now, this, this is fascinating because Paul, right, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church. And, and uh, throughout the letter, you realize that this isn't actually Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. We call it 1 Corinthians because it's the, the oldest one we have still remaining. But you can tell they've been talking. You can tell they've been sending letters back and forth to each other. And so throughout the letter, Paul is, is referencing things that they're asking questions about or things that he's heard about that they didn't bring up, right? And so Paul now says, all right, concerning the spiritual gifts, because they had written him saying, we're, we're divided over this. We, we don't know what to do with these spiritual gifts. It's causing problems in our church. And, and what's happening is they had, they had this debate over what it meant to be a spiritual person. Right? Most scholars say that if you, if you follow the thread throughout the whole book, the, the real argument in the Corinthian church is what does it mean to be a spiritual person? And what got included in that argument was gifts. And so some people were saying that to be a spiritual person meant that you had a specific kind of gift. If you had this gift, you were spiritual. And if you had this gift or if you had no gifts, then you were not spiritual. And so the, there's these two camps that were starting to form, the, the gifted people who were godly people and the ungifted people who were the ungodly people. And so Paul says, let's, let's talk about that. Let's, let's talk about these spiritual gifts. And uh, what's interesting is right off the bat, Paul goes to two dangers. And the first one is this, ignorance. He, he jumps right in and he says, about these spiritual gifts, I don't want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to, to be out there not knowing how these things work and, and not understanding how God has gifted his church. If you don't know about spiritual gifts, it's going to be dangerous to your spiritual life. And so you, you can't be ignorant about this, but here's the second danger. And, and the second danger is what Paul spends the whole rest of the chapter on. The second danger is arrogance. And I love the way Paul brings it up. This, this is kind of tongue-in-cheek for him. He says, y'all remember when you were pagans, right? That's my translation. You, you remember when every little idol that came into your life, you were jumping on it to, to worship these things that were false gods. So this isn't the first time you've been led astray, is it? And what, what he's doing is he's saying, you, you've been divided over your view of these gifts that there's the haves and the have-nots, but listen, you've been tricked before. How about we talk about this? And so Paul is, is trying to humble them to say, maybe, just maybe you could be wrong. And so what's happening is he's saying, there's folks who've elevated their spiritual gift that, that it's now become spiritual pride. And what he's calling us to is that God's gifts can't be neglected or elevated. You hear that? They can't be neglected, but they also can't be wrongly elevated. I was reading this week, uh, this, is, this is very interesting. Americans are getting worse at the price is right. <laughs> Devastating. <laughs> Devastating, but... The, you know, the, the game show, The Price is Right, if you don't know, I mean, turn on daytime TV, I don't know. It's been running since 1972. There's 10,000 episodes of The Price is Right. And basically, if you've never seen the show, there's four contestants who have to guess the price of common 
things like a washing machine or some grocery items or paper towels, I don't know, whatever the thing is, you have to guess the price and you have to come in lower and but be as close as you possibly can without going over. Right? And so that's how you, you win the game. It's, it's guessing the price correctly. And, and there's this researcher from Harvard who apparently has too much time on his hands. And he's watching the price is right. And he decides, I'm going to put my research skills into the price is right because he noticed people are getting worse. And so he did some research, ran the numbers all the way back to 1972. In the, in the 1970s, we would get closer to the, to the actual price being about 8% off. In the 2010s, we were over 20% off the price on average. Isn't that fascinating? Now, he writes this whole article about why that is and the economy and different things, and we're not going to get into that. But, but what's fascinating to me is he's showing that we as a people are, are getting worse at, at evaluating and assessing something's value. And if you, if you can't assess value, if you over-assess it, you're going to lose. And if you severely under-assess it, you're also going to lose. But the way you win the game is to have a right assessment of the value. This is what Paul is saying. Paul is saying you've, you've either overestimated or you've underestimated. See, it's the same with God's gifts, that in pride we, we elevate our gift to this incredible value, thinking our gift is the gift. Now, for the church in Corinth, right, it was the gift of tongues. And that comes up, chapter 12, 13, 14. The gift of tongues kind of brings all these chapters together. Now, I'm going to guess at Strong Tower that the gift that we elevate is not the gift of tongues. I'm just going to guess. I don't know. Okay. Okay, I'm going to guess. But I guarantee you, we elevate some gift. Just because that was the problem in Corinth doesn't mean there's no problem in Lakeland. Right? It, it's, it's, it's the same principle Paul is saying. You, you've taken this gift and you've elevated it to the place where it shouldn't be. And now you look down on everybody else. And what's fascinating is, uh, we usually elevate the gifts that we have, right? Or we elevate the gifts that we wish we had, that someone else has. But it's always the things that we value. I mean, what are the gifts we elevate? Think about that. I mean, is it the gift of mercy? Those people are really spiritual because they care for the poor. I mean, is it the gift of, of knowledge? Those people are really spiritual because they know the Bible and they can apply the gospel. Is it, is it the gift of, of, I don't know, pick something? That this is the thing that happens. You, you elevate this gift up to the height and then everyone else is judged in their spirituality by that gift. But the, the opposite problem can also be just as dangerous. Paul's saying you can... You can also neglect your gift out of ignorance. We elevate our gift in pride. We can neglect it in our fear. And at first it seems real humble, right? Oh, I don't have any gifts. I'm, I'm just a normal person. I don't, I don't have anything that God could use. I don't, I don't really have a place here. I'm, I'm just busy. I got a lot going on. I don't know. I'm, and it seems real humble. It seems like you're lowering yourself. But really, you're just afraid. 
You're, you're afraid that, that I've been burnt out before. I, I've been burned by the church before. I, I don't know if I'm good at this kind of stuff. What, what if I find out that the thing I'm good at is insignificant and no one's going to care, no one's going to see me, and that's just awkward. Right? There's these things that we can neglect the gift because we don't feel like it's worth it. But I want you to hear throughout these next few weeks, all of us, if you have the Spirit of God living in you, you have the gifts of God. You are a gifted person in God's body. We might be afraid of failure or burnout or insignificance, but God wants to use those gifts. No matter your age, no matter your stage of life, no matter your career, what I want you to hear today, and I'm going to challenge all of us over these next couple of weeks, we have this, this thing coming up called the Serve Team Expo, and we haven't done this since COVID. I think it's been three years. I don't know. But it's, it's an opportunity once a year for us to just simply say, these are the serve teams that we have at our church. These are the ways that we serve the body. These are the ways that we serve our community, and we would love for you to get involved. And there's going to be an opportunity for all of us to come to that thing after church and sign up for a team or, or maybe switch a team because you found, you know what, I'm really better over here than over here. Or maybe just to learn about these things because you're new to church, you're not really sure how this works. But what I want you to hear is whatever you choose to do, if you call this church your home, you have gifts for this body. And the people in this church have gifts for you. And the way God has designed this body to function is that all of us would come together with our particular gifts and use those gifts for one another. And so whatever that is, God is calling us out of a place of arrogance, out of a place of ignorance to say, I'm willing to serve his body. So how do we get past those two dangers? Let's look at what Paul says about the many gifts. Look at verse 4. He goes on to say this, Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Now, Paul, he starts to speak to this issue of unity and diversity. He's going to carry this throughout. He really carries it out the whole letter. Um, but here he uses this language of variety and sameness. Now, notice what he says has variety and what has sameness. The variety is to the gifts that these people have. The sameness is in God. You catch that? In other words, he's not saying we are the same and God is somehow, you know, has a variety, but he's saying there's a variety of gifts in the body, but it's the same God. And then he's about to go on, and we're going to look at this next week, to list all of these gifts. But for now, it's enough to just say this. It's a long list. And there's even more in the rest of the Bible, right? If you go throughout the rest of the New Testament, there are uh, multiple lists in Ephesians 4, Romans 12, uh, 1 Peter 4. And all of these lists, get this, they're all different. And so what the New Testament writers are telling us is there isn't like a set list of these are the, the top 10 gifts and everything else is not a spiritual gift. Actually, what they're communicating is there are so many gifts, we, we can't even list them all. And every time we try to come up with a list, there's a different list. Because the diversity of the gifts really reflects the diversity of our God. And yet in the infinite variety that we're, giving, there, we're given, there's this same 
God. And it's fascinating. Paul gets real theological here. Hold with me for a second. He roots this truth in the trinity of God, in the triune nature of our God. And and you might be asking, what does that mean? What does the trinity mean? The scriptures teach that there is one true God who exists in three distinct persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Right? That, that's what we mean by the Trinity. That's what the church has confessed and, and gathered from the scriptures as you see the Father and the Son and the Spirit functioning in their own roles, distinct yet the same. Paul is saying, as he brings these all into the text, he's saying that diversity you see in the body is reflecting the diversity you see in God himself. And so diversity is not some cultural value. Diversity is not some thing that you see on the news. Diversity is rooted in the very nature of God. The diversity of gifts reflects the diversity of God. There's a guy now known as the the paper airplane guy. And a few, I think it was about a decade ago, this guy named John Collins, he decided to take his passion for paper airplanes to the next level. He decided he, he's going to make the, the airplane, the, the paper airplane that can actually break the Guinness World Record for longest flight. And so for three years, he dedicated himself to making this paper airplane. And he perfected the design and worked it and worked it and worked it. And, and then he finally, when he landed on the design he, he loved, he affectionately called it Suzanne. They, they might have had an intimate relationship. I don't know. It, it, he, he named his paper airplane. You can go on YouTube and learn how to make Suzanne. Don't do it now. But he realized after he made the perfect airplane that he was missing something. He realized, I can't throw this thing very far. I'm not a really strong guy. I I need an arm. And so he calls up his buddy Joe, who played college football, and he decides he's going to ask Joe to be his arm for this world record and so he decides they're, they're going to work together. I'll make the plane, you throw the plane. And so they set up this big thing. They invite Guinness out to watch it. And, and they have this crowd and they're all in this uh, empty airplane hangar. And Joe pulls back and he throws the airplane and it flies 226 feet, 10 inches. Almost a football field with a paper airplane. World record, smashes the record And afterwards, what he said was this, I couldn't do it by myself. All I can do is fold paper. But with Joe, we can do this. With with the two of us together, when I bring my gifts and you bring your gifts, together we can break the record. See, listen, what, what Paul is pushing back against, and it's real prominent in our culture, is this hierarchy of gifts. Where, where we say that if you have this gift, you're, you're gifted. But if you have this gift, you're like really gifted. Right? There, there's a hierarchy. You're gifted, but he's really gifted. And, and what you say is things like, oh, well, you know, I, I, don't, I don't really have that. Or that's, that's for you. But, but there's these greater gifts that we treat differently. And it seems to always be the ones with the biggest stage, doesn't it? It seems to always be the ones that, that have the most influence, the ones that get you a seat at the table, the ones that let people uh, admire your, your abilities, and, and they're always the outward gifts and the things that people can give you glory for. 
See, I think we elevate people with microphones and followers because it feeds into our idols of power and influence. Just like the culture. We judge someone's giftedness by their influence. The powerful people we consider the spiritual people. The influential people, those are the really spiritual folks. Just like the culture, we, we become obsessed with influence and, and power and prestige and all these things that, that come with, with a sense of giftedness on the outside. Those who do it are glorified and those who don't are ignored. Just ask yourself, when, what are the kinds of gifts that you've asked God for? Now, that may seem like an odd question, maybe because you're not used to, or maybe you haven't heard of asking God for gifts, but, but maybe flip it and say, what, what kind of gifts would you ask for? If you've never asked God for any gifts, well, what would you ask him for? And I think many people, if you, you look back over your life, or maybe you look ahead and you're thinking, what would I ask God for? The kinds of things that we typically ask God for when it comes to gifts are the, the things that will make us known. The things that will, will be seen and, you know, so you want to preach to crowds or, or you want to sing on a stage or you want to teach a really deep Bible study that people, you know, come away saying, wow, isn't she so smart? Or you, you want to do things that people can see you and know you or you want to go off to some distant land to preach the gospel as a missionary, whatever it is. And, and we need those things. But when was the last time someone said, you know what, God, I need the gift of lamenting. God, I, I really need the gift of cleaning because I just hate cleaning. God, I really need the gift of, of just calling people when they're in need. I mean, just think about it, all, all the types of gifts that we elevate and the things that we ask for and the things that we seek, I, I think, I'm, I'm convinced now that the reason we don't seek those other things is because they're hidden and they're weak. And what Paul is doing here and what he's going to do throughout this chapter, it's fascinating. He flips all of that on its head and he reorders the church he completely reorders the church and our obsession with power and influence. He says, you've got it all backwards. And he, he flips it on its head and, and he says that each of your gifts are equally from God and for God. From God and for God. And so there's diversity, but he's saying there, there's no hierarchy. There's no gift that's greater than another gift. All of these gifts are from the same God. And so we need the person who folds the airplane, and we need the person who throws the airplane. We need the people who will go pick up people for church on Sunday morning because they don't have a car, and no one's going to ask you, and no one's going to congratulate you, but you show up and you get them to church because you have that gift. We need people who will care for, for the kids in the other room and miss out on service once a month. We, we, we need people who will, without being asked, pray for your connect group every single day because you know people are suffering. I mean, th this is the kind of stuff we need. We need people who will go to the hospital and visit even when no one's asked you to do it. 
Because that's your gift, is to be with people when they're hurting. This is what Paul is saying. The, the gifts that are seen, that's great. But, but the gifts that are unseen, they're just as valuable. And what God has called us into is to say, all of us, whatever your gift may be, in all of our diversity, we're to reflect that diversity of God in the way that we love one another. And in our diversity, as we reflect him, we, we need to hear the same good news of the same God. And this is the last point he goes to, the same God. Look again at verse 6, what he says. He says, And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God, it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. This is the third time in one sentence that Paul uses that phrase, the same. He says, the same Spirit, the same Lord, the same God. All three members of the Trinity. He, he's bringing them all together, repeating it over and over so you can see and I can see that this, this gift that you have, it's coming from the same God. There's many gifts, but there's one gift giver. And what he's reminding them is, is this first move of the gospel that's humility. right? What, he, what he's saying is no matter what your gift is, no matter how gifted you are and how, how many praises people sing of you and how, how amazing you are on paper and your resume is this long, no matter what your gift is, it comes from the same God. The same God. There, there's not another God who gave you a gift and another God who gave them a gift. It's from the same God. We're not the center of attention. We're not the source we are not God, is what he's saying. God is God alone. And so if you're ever going to understand the gospel and the way the gospel works, you see it in the gifts that God gives. The shape of the gift is the same shape of the gospel. First, you have to humble yourself to know, I am not God. The gifts are from him. But there's a second move of the gospel here, and it's power. This is the same God. He says literally empowers all in all. All the gifts in all the people find all its power in God alone. That's what he's saying. And so it's this simultaneous move of the gospel where he's saying it should humble you that it's the same God, right? Because this means it's not about you. This means that you're not some special case, but it should also empower you because that same God empowered not only them, he empowered you and he empowered you and he empowered you. He empowered you with his very presence to do his very work. And so there's this two steps of the gospel right here in the gifts. You see this humility and then you see this empowerment that God is saying, when I gift you, I'm showing you how the gospel works. The gospel moves you down and then it moves you up. The gospel gives you this kind of humble, boldness. It's the shape of the gospel. In fact, Jesus himself lives out this shape as, as God sends his greatest gift in Jesus. Jesus comes with this kind of humble boldness. He's born into humility and lives in obscurity his whole childhood, but when he gets to adulthood and Jesus is about to begin his public ministry, Jesus goes down to the Jordan River where John the Baptist is baptizing people. And John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Messiah. And as he's preparing the way, he's preaching to the crowds. And he's preaching this message of repentance. He's saying, uh, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here. And he's saying, prepare yourself because God is on his way. 
And as he's preaching and as he's baptizing people and they're turning away from their sin and they're turning to God, he sees Jesus as Jesus makes his way down to the river. And when John sees Jesus, he calls out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the next scene is fascinating. Jesus doesn't say, Oh, you're right, here I am. He doesn't just bask in the glory that John gives him. Jesus moves down into the water and he says, I'm here to be baptized. What? I mean, John is almost filled with outrage. How can I baptize you? You're, you're supposed to baptize me, Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. I'm here talking about you. And Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to work. And Jesus persists. Why in the world would the sinless Son of God need to be baptized? One reason. Because he was identifying with us. Jesus was coming not not to just save us and disappear. Jesus was coming to live the life that we were called to live. And he's humbling himself down to the very bottom down to the lowest place where he can identify with the sinner being baptized in our place, taking upon himself our sin, our shame, our guilt, saying, this is what I'm here to do. But then when he comes up out of the water, he hears the Father's voice from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you see the move? He, Jesus lowers himself down into the water and then when he comes up, the father says, this is my son. It, it was the father saying what he's always said from all eternity, what, what his, his identity is. That Jesus has always heard, that this is who I am. I am the beloved son of God. This is who I was. This is who I am. This is who I'll always be. And it's this identity that Jesus has that empowers him, empowers him over all the temptation he's about to endure. It's what empowers him to do everything that God had called him to do. All the opportunities to love and to care and to serve that were about to come his way, to heal and to, and to teach all of these things, the gifts that God had given Jesus, they're rooted. They're rooted in who he is in his Father. And because he knew that he was loved, he was empowered to walk out those gifts all the way to the end. See, as Jesus made his way to the cross, he walked in humble boldness. His glory was shown in his weakness. God's greatest gift was rejected and despised. He was deserted by his own friends. He was carried off to be tried like a criminal. He was wrongly condemned and unjustly sentenced. They drove nails through his hands and feet. They hung him high. They stretched him wide. They left him to die in his shame. And everyone there was wondering, how could this be our Savior? How could this naked man on a cross be the one who's come to save us? In all his weakness, in all his loss, in all his failure, in all his obscurity and his hiddenness, how could he be the gift that God gave us? Because that's how God always gives his gifts. God's gifts come by way of weakness. By way of weakness. And just like in the Jordan River, when Jesus went down into the depths of the waters, Jesus goes down into the depths of God's wrath for us and our sin, drowning in the sins of the world. And that Sunday morning, he got up. 
See, the gospel takes you down, but then it brings you up. There's a death, and then there's a resurrection. Jesus died in weakness, but he was raised in power. He was raised with all power in his hands, power over sin and death, power to serve and to love, power to give all that he has to all that are in need. That is the shape of the gospel. Down, then up. It's the way of all of God's gifts. And so when God gives us spiritual gifts, it's a sign of the gospel. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel to humble us to say, God must give us gifts. In fact, he must give us gifts so much so that he must send his greatest gift, Jesus. But not only that he must, he would. He chooses to because he loves us. And so he sends his son not only out of necessity, but out of love. And before you receive any kind of spiritual gift to to use in the church or in the community or for God to work through your life, the first gift he says you have to have is the gift of himself. Because all the spiritual gifts, as Paul is about to unpack, they come from the same God. This God who's living in you. This God who's taken up residence in your life. He wants to gift you, but first he wants to save you. He wants to give you the gift of his son. And the way you receive that gift is the same way you receive any gift. You go down and then you go up. You go down in confession. You say, God, I I need you. I I give my life to you. I I need to be forgiven. I need to confess my sins. And so I, I give my life away. But then you go up in this gift of faith to say, I trust you. I trust you with everything. I put my faith in you. And that downward and upward motion is the new shape of your life, the shape of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your gifts, from the smallest gifts that we don't even notice, that go unseen, to the greatest gift of Jesus himself. God, you have gifted us in so many ways beyond our comprehension. And so, Father, we pray as we consider the gifts you give and the great gift giver yourself. Lord, we pray your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts that shape, that we would be humbly changed, that we would be boldly changed so that we live in that tension. We live knowing who you've called us to be and we live following by faith. God, help us to love one another through these gifts that you've given, that the gifts you give to us might pass through us on to someone else to bring you glory and good to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand as we sing.